Hi, and welcome to the Energy Intelligence Forum. And thank you for joining us for today's leadership dialogue with Vicki Holub, CEO of Occidental Petroleum. My name is Casey Merriman. I'm the Western Hemisphere Editorial Director and Head of Competitive Intelligence here at Energy Intelligence. As I mentioned earlier, I'm joined by Oxy's Vicki Holub. Vicki, it's a real pleasure to have you with us again this year. Thank you, Casey. I'm happy to be back. Absolutely. So you and I were chatting in this exact same venue a year ago, and in that conversation, uh, you really flagged for the first time in detail the scope of your thinking around carbon capture and its ability to be a standalone foundational business line for Oxy over time, as well as a massive global industry. So much has taken place in the oil and gas sector over the past year regarding low carbon strategies and many jurisdictions uh, have considered additional fiscal incentives you know, to support CCS as part of their decarbonization plans. So I'd like to start our conversation today in this space and then we can of course switch over to, to oil and gas later on. So, so Vicki, one of the, the first things I wanna touch on is last year at the forum uh, was when you kind of um, discussed uh, the 1.5 venture and since then, Oxy's embraced um, aggressive net zero emissions targets on the expectation of building out this business uh, around direct air capture. But so as you've sat with these plans for a while, how are you thinking about them in the more medium term, right? I know your first plant won't be online until 2024. So kind of what does the next maybe 10 years hold in this space? How do you start moving quickly? I think we first have to get the first plant built. And uh, as we're, the good thing about what we're doing here with the first plant is we have a team that's working on the engineering design of it and trying to uh, stay on schedule. And in fact, right now ahead of schedule. Uh, but also while that team is working on the first plant, we have another team that's innovating uh, on how to make it better and how to make it lower cost, more efficient, and our teams are working with Worley to do that. So since last year, uh, we have selected Worley as our, uh, as our contractor to help with the engineering and the construction. And um, what I'm so excited about now versus last year is we're seeing real progress and not progress just on getting the first plant meeting the schedule, but progress around how to think about innovation and how to make it better before we even build the first one. So that's the progress we've made. And what it's going to mean beyond the, um, the, that first plant is a progression of additional segments of plants. And the first 12 we've announced would be in the Permian Basin. Uh, but ultimately, we intend to expand beyond the Permian Basin to the DJ, the Powder River in the United States, and ultimately to Oman and Abu Dhabi. So we believe we can put these anywhere around the world and that direct air capture is going to be the most important technology developed for the energy transition. And so we're working hard to make sure that, um, that we get the first one the, uh, is, is well designed and as efficient as we can. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And I mean, you know, one of the things we have seen from investors uh, kind of in, in this past uh, year is, is a real push to that, you know, kind of concrete implementation, firm targets, and, and certainly you've put forward the targets, and, um, but you are, of course, still working with an emerging technology. And so in, how are your conversations with investors going? How do you kind of thread that needle? What, how do they kind of understand what they need to, to kind of work with in this space? What's helpful uh, about our strategy with our uh, investors 
is that we're building on our core competence. 40 years of experience in CO2 enhanced oil recovery. We're currently still the largest uh, user of CO2 for enhanced oil recovery in the world. So this is, a, this is who we are. This is our core competence. And so they understand that. What they also understand is that lower cost and more sustainable supply of CO2 will enable us to unlock 2 billion barrels of additional resources for enhanced oil recovery from conventional reservoirs. And right now, we haven't even calculated what the number will be for our unconventional, but we know it'll work in the unconventional because we've, we've uh, conducted four pilots that show that it will. So we will begin to start um, ultimately CO2 sequestering in the uh, shell play as well. And so our, our investors know that, that this is a core competence, that we're really good at it. And with respect to the direct air capture, they're excited about the fact that we have that competence too. Uh, through our chemicals business. So it's a, it's a strategy that's going to deliver value for our shareholders, and they can actually calculate and see how that value is added through lower cost CO2 for the uh, enhanced oil recovery projects. Mm -hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. So and this touches on a, a bit of kind of the connection with EOR and in kind of maybe thinking uh, longer term. I, um, I had a chance to talk to Neil Chapman at Exxon earlier this week, and, and he was kind of making the point of um, maybe slicing CCS into different buckets when, when thinking about its economics and kind of the threshold of incentives that are needed to make it viable. And like, I think unsurprisingly, you know, noted that very concentrated sources of CO2 that are near sequestration sites uh, can often be the most economic. But of course, Direct air capture by nature deals with very diffuse concentrations. So, so is EOR or some other utilization mechanism essential to making direct air capture viable? Um, or alternately, if, if there was not that mechanism, what level of incentives would you need to see to make it work? Well, there are two important aspects of uh, a reply to, to that question. Sure. One is addressing first the EOR part. The EOR part where you can get some incremental production from the sequestration of the CO2 is important for the economics. It helps. And um, to make the energy transition happen as quickly as we need it to happen, incentives like that where it enables us to accelerate development is critically important. So. EOR is not absolutely necessary to make it economical, but it will accelerate it. And the other reason that EOR is important is because if you look at the IEA net zero by 50, uh, by 2050 scenario, what they've built into that scenario is that we have to increase our low carbon or uh, zero carbon fuels, liquid fuels from 1.6 million barrels a day to 19 million barrels a day by 2050. And there's no way to do that without also including the lower carbon or zero carbon barrels from enhanced oil recovery. And so using anthropogenic or atmospheric CO2 in enhanced oil recovery will generate low carbon and uh, net zero carbon fuels. And that's what a lot of people are missing about this. Mm -hmm. We have to get to 19 million by 2050 and that will enable then uh, aviation and maritime industries to, uh, to become uh, carbon neutral ultimately. And you know, as you know, United is, is involved in our first plant. And I would say that on the direct air capture um, with uh, what incentives would be needed, 
the thing that some people are missing too about direct air capture versus the point source um, emission capture is that direct air capture can be put anywhere. And it not only can be put anywhere, but we don't need to get an emitter to agree to put any retrofit on their facility with direct air capture. So that helps accelerate it because if you look at it, how many people are doing this? How many people are retrofitting those high CO2 concentration emissions right now? I don't see it happening unless it's required by regulation and that's mostly international. So it's not happening today. So we can't wait for emitters to make the determination to retrofit. We can do our direct air capture. We can control the pace and the magnitude of that development without depending on others. And in addition to that, Direct air capture must work because if you look at the concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere, they've grown by 50% since uh, pre-industrial times. So we must make direct air capture work. It's not a, a nice to have technology. It's an absolute have to have technology. Yeah, and well, and we certainly have seen, I think, momentum, particularly in the US in terms of from a policy, policy front uh, build you know, for CCS, yeah. I think there is definitely this recognition of, of the role it plays. And so obviously there are a lot of different support mechanisms that are kind of floated out there. There's and kind of an extension and expansion of the 45Q tax credit. Um, others have, you know, thought of tax rebates. Um, low carbon fuel standards could potentially be expanded beyond California. Uh, kind of of all those different mechanisms, what do you think would be the biggest game changer for CCS more broadly in the US in your view? You know, what would you really like to see? I think the, the, the thing that would help the most and would accelerate development of direct air capture and other CCUS projects would be the, um, the expansion of, um, of 45Q and that is the, the enhancement of the credits and the direct pay. So enhancement, increasing the, uh, the uh, value of the credits, um, plus making them direct pay. If that could happen, then that accelerates direct air capture and other CCUS projects in the United States. And that would be not only important for the US to lead the world then in doing that, but to, to have others be able to expand this out of the US and, and around the world. I think that's critically important. Yeah, well, one of the things that, that we've heard uh, from kind of your, your U.S. peers is that conversations with policymakers, uh, you know, both at the federal and even maybe the state level, that there is a receptiveness and there's a, a desire to kind of understand how to get these projects going. What has just been your own personal experience in, in this front? There's definitely bipartisan support <laughs> for the enhancement of 45Q uh, along with direct pay. So we're in the President Biden's administration uh, supports CCUS. Mm -hmm. um, so it, we're at this unique time when if we just pull together and we make it happen, uh, it's, going to, it's going to really have a major impact on, um, on the US. And we should be able to meet um, President Biden's uh, aspirations that he delivered when he, we rejoined the Paris Accord. Uh, the only way to achieve that is to have this happen. Otherwise, I don't see a path to get there. So I know the administration supports it. Um, in uh, Congress, there's bipartisan support in the uh, both in the House and the Senate. And, and so I'm really excited that this is, I think it's going to happen and it's going to happen soon. 
Yeah, no, for sure. So, I mean, obviously, you know, as you said, that your CCO's focus for now is is in the U.S. Um, and you, you did tip a bit, maybe long-term plans for the Middle East. But I was just wondering if you could maybe elaborate a bit. I mean, we have seen in the past several months a number of producing countries in the region uh, really start to talk of high CCS plans for their decarbonization. The UAE just today pledged net zero by 2050. So kind of how are you thinking about maybe your uh, opportunity set in the Middle East, kind of given your relationship there? Yeah, we have a great relationship with uh, our partners, Adnoc and uh, Abu Dhabi and uh, Oman Oil in, in Oman. And both countries have very proactive and progressive plans to lower their emissions over time. They each have climate change mitigation strategies. So this fits within what both countries are thinking. And it'll be a great complement to what they're trying to accomplish. I think we'll be very well supported to put uh, direct air capture and to retrofit um, uh, possibly some emitters, some industrial emitters in both countries. So I think it's going to work out for us uh, in the Middle East in both of those areas. Mm-hmm. Well, let's switch gears to, to oil and gas since that's where the revenues come today and there's there's a lot going on there. Um, so when, when we spoke uh, last year, you felt that U.S. oil output had probably peaked. And certainly over the past 12 months, uh, shale producers, um, well, maybe the public ones at least, uh, have remained very disciplined um, and been rewarded by shareholders for that discipline. So as we look forward, you know, if the world needs more oil, say due to underinvestment over the past few years and demand is robust, can shale rise to the occasion or has it lost some of its swing capabilities? I'd say that there's still a lot of short cycle, high return um, resources in the shale yet to be developed in the United States. Uh, So I certainly think that we also, the companies in the U.S. have the technical capability and capacity to make it happen. Um, I think the pace at which it'll happen will will really be driven by the market. I think that we've certainly, um, I hope, learned our lesson around uh, exceeding uh, demand with uh, too much supply. We've suffered from that numerous times in our industry, and sometimes there are going to still be times when we don't get it exactly right, but we want to make sure we don't overrun it too much. And what I'm seeing from public companies is a lot of discipline around that. Not so much with the privates. The privates are increasing uh, their rigs more than than others. Um, But I believe that um, the U.S. could, if needed, um, increase our supply and... uh, but I don't think it, it would go back to the 13 million barrels yeah. a day from the U.S. Uh, as we peaked previously. I would think that we'd see over, probably over 12 million barrels a day, but not back up to the 13. Mm-hmm. I mean, and along those lines, uh, again, kind of curious what you're hearing from investors, because there seems to be a bit of debate on what kind of what capital discipline means. You know, in, in some camps, people kind of interpret that as you know, no growth kind of period. And in other cases, it's growth when it is needed, but in a disciplined way. What, what, what are, how are you kind of hearing that interpreted from your investors? Uh, our investors, I think, feel that, that discipline is producing just enough to meet demand. And uh, where that is very, very tricky <laughs> is yes. there are a lot of companies. We're not like uh, the international countries where there's a national oil company where, and you can 
you can dictate it a little bit better. Yes. So here in the United States, there's over a thousand companies in the Birmingham, for example, and and so to to have um, a way to to uh, control supply from the United States, um, there's we can't do that right now. So it really depends on the um, on the discipline of the individual companies. And to me, if you look back, I can understand why the, the investors are upset with the oil and gas industry. We can all understand that. We talk about it. When oil was $100 a barrel, we, the industry generally made lower returns than what we can make today. And so just looking at that number, you know there was a lack of discipline. So discipline to me is not exceeding uh, collectively the uh, demand that's out there and also making sure that you deliver solid returns to the shareholders through the cycles, which means you have to design your business so that when we have the downturns, we can continue to produce and continue to deliver value. And that's discipline to me. Um, so I, I think the investors will be watching very closely what we do and how we do it. And uh, we're trying um, very hard to continue to increase our margins. And so rather than grow our volumes, mm -hmm. we are growing our, our margins and trying to do that at more innovatively as we go and continuing that progress that we've established five or six years ago in the shell. And so um, that's how we'll deliver value to our shareholders. And then, you know, in our situation, we can continue to lower debt, which also increases value for our shareholders. So we have other means to do that rather than through volume growth. Sure. Well, and kind of along those lines, I mean, one thing that can certainly help uh, both production and, and value on the margin is being able to do more with less. And I think that the uh, kind of efficiency and productivity gains that we've seen in the Permian and kind of throughout shale as the industry has gotten back to work has genuinely surprised. <laughs> I think um, I think Jeff Alvarez put it on your last earnings call that he was blown away by mm -hmm. the continued successes your team was having finding new efficiencies. How sustainable uh, is most of this, particularly as rigs do come back, you know, even in a disciplined way? And are there any other kind of sponges to squeeze to get to get more out of the system? Well, we, when we bring back rigs, we bring it back, them back very carefully and at a pace that we can um, ensure that, first of all, from a safety standpoint, that we're starting out in the best way that we can. Um, and, then we, and then we look at how did we get more efficient because uh, the, the rigs on uh, drilling rigs are kind of like football teams. You know, they, they have to work together, they have to get to know each other, tendencies and inclinations and and all in capabilities so that they can understand how better to play their position with a, with a full team. So it does take a little bit of time when you come back on to get back to that efficiency level that, that you may have had before you let the rig go. Uh, so with respect to the sustainability of what we're doing, I agree with what Jeff Alvarez said because I, I found that over the last few years that when I would sit in my office thinking about where we needed to be, I would come up with targets for these teams and I would go in and, and uh, with, with the intent to, to share with them this hard target that I really needed them to achieve only to find that everybody's smiling at me when I talk about the target. And, and I find out that they had already set a target that was much harder than what I was going to right. set for them. And that's, that's, and it, it's so good when you have teams that are driven for success and then to succeed and to lower costs 
And just this, um, this during the pandemic, during the, when our activity had slowed down quite a bit, our New Mexico team just on their own decided that they were gonna bring together all these initiatives that we had going and target it more toward a specific dollar per barrel cost. So they wanted to lower our break-evens by $10 a barrel. And when I first heard of that goal, I'm thinking, well, it's nice to have, you know, that kind of aspiration, sure. but guess what? They achieved it. Right. They achieved it on the areas they were working on mm -hmm. and they achieved it by, by looking at the drilling completions, operations, uh, artificial lift, um, how we flow back, how we produce over time, looking at all of those things. And the exciting thing about it is as a part of that, we're still seeing continued improvement in our drilling operations when our efficiencies around drilling started about 10 years ago when we right. implemented a proprietary drilling um, a program called, we call it Oxy Drilling Dynamics. And we're still seeing improvements. Over that 10 year period, we saved, we just looked at it recently, showed our board, we've saved billions of dollars with that program. And it's still delivering today because still in second quarter, what Jeff was talking about is we're still seeing uh, percent improvements everywhere we've implemented that. And everywhere we've implemented it, we've seen 15 to 35% reduction in our drilling cost. And then in, two, in second quarter, still saw a 9% improvement in, re, in uh, rate of penetration in the DJ Basin, saw continued records being set in terms of uh, footage drilled per day in both the DJ and the Midland Basins. And from a completion standpoint, we've eliminated a lot of the non-productive time and setting records where we're pumping more than 23 hours out of the 24 hour period when the number used to be much lower for that. And then on the subsurface, there's a lot of exciting things going on the subsurface. It's a little more difficult to be able to share because sure. some of what they're doing from a petrophysical modeling standpoint is leading edge technology. It's state of the art. And it's something that I never imagined 10 or 15 years ago that we, we would be capable of doing but we're doing it. And so we've seen in uh, one of our key areas in the Delaware, a 20% improvement in well productivity. And this is after, as you said, five years of continuous right. improvement in productivity. So it's still, so is it sustainable? People have asked, our investors have asked me that almost every year. Right. And, and my answer every year is, well, I think it's, you know, they've done a great job, but how much more can they do? It's, it's really going to plateau a little bit. Every time right. I say it's going to plateau, I guess our teams take it out as a challenge and they make sure they're doing it wrong. Yeah, so absolutely. I'm really excited about where we are and I, I, I think it'll continue. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, in terms of your own trajectory in the Permian, I mean, your, your volumes naturally pulled back considerably since early 2020 uh, and are now in recovery as you know, you put rigs back to work and, I guess if, if the goal this year was to just kind of stabilize output, work on the balance sheet, what are your plans and expectations in the play, say kind of 2022 on, you know, price limitations notwithstanding? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we don't see that um, in 2022 and beyond that we need to grow significantly. Mm -hmm. So our growth over that, over the period maybe over the next 10 years, will be more to reestablish a dividend and to grow that dividend. And so we, right now, our break-evens are less than $40. And so the lower we can get those break-evens, uh, the better we are able to 
continue to provide value in a low cycle environment. And so we will continue every for every barrel that we grow production that's lower that break even goes. And so as long as we're disciplined and, and we're we're um, creating barrels that are lower margin than well or at least the same margin that we're producing today. So that that means capital allocation for us is really critical. We can't get uh, sloppy around that. We have to continue to make sure that every dollar we invest goes to the the uh, projects that deliver the most most value over time. Um, so, I think that we will modestly grow over time, but it will be to ensure that our break even stay below forty and that our dividend can grow. When you purchased Anadarko, uh, admittedly, I, the expectation in a lot of industry circles was that the Gulf Mexico assets would be among those that you would look to sell. Uh, but it actually seems like you quite like them. <laughs> and I'm curious, um, was that always your intention to hold on to them? Or was it really something that once you got your hands on the assets, you saw them complementing your strategy? Um, and it kind of to that point, what does the Gulf of Mexico do for you moving forward? Yeah, as we were looking at the acquisition, the Gulf of Mexico was always going to be stay a part of our uh, operations and be a core asset for us because what we like about it is the position where, that Anadarko had built. Um, there's 10 platforms and all those platforms with, within um, uh, close proximity to all of those pla platforms, there's quite a bit of remaining development and, uh, and exploration uh, opportunities. And so to tie them in is a lower cost than what others would might have where they don't have that uh, that proximity of, um, of development opportunity. So for us, it'll stay with us. Uh, we it's at one of our highest margin assets, so it's delivering quite a bit of cash flow, and the cash flow is used to support the uh, the capital programs in the Permian Basin. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. So I have a question that's coming from uh, my colleague Oliver Klaus uh, from Dubai, uh, mm -hmm. wanting to know a bit about. Uh, your Abu Dhabi uh, exploration and appraisal efforts. So he asks, what, what is the state of play um, on exploration, appraisal, and seismic on onshore blocks three and five in Abu Dhabi? We haven't disclosed anything yet. Okay, uh, we sure. have drilled two wells. Um, and what we're most excited about in block three and five, it's really an extension of the same type of play, the same trend that we've developed in Oman for the last Know, 30 plus years and so we understand that trend and we know it that's why we bid for it because we can take all that we've learned in Oman and apply it to block three and, and block five and we're excited about it yeah no that makes a lot of sense um one question that came in from um an, an anonymous uh, participant um is just around kind of ccs more broadly i mean obviously ccs has been around uh for a few decades and there's a learning curve to that but you know that there have been I guess kind of a number of, of missteps where maybe we've seen historically projects maybe you know have a lot of downtime or not capture the CO2 as expected. Um, you know we've had the case where the the Petronova plant in Houston uh, kind of shut in. So you know kind of as you're ap approaching this uh, kind of very committed from a business standpoint and you're going into kind of more of an emerging technology. I mean, what are the lessons that could be learned or how do you kind of maybe try to avoid some of these, these uh, teething, teething issues? Well, we've looked at, um, at the key projects around the world where people have said that, that they failed. And um, our view is that we applaud companies for trying it, first of all. And NRG tried it. And 
Uh, I wouldn't say that that facility is, is dead. I would say that maybe there's something else that can be done with the CO2 that's, that's captured by that facility. So I think that every project we've looked at, we've found um, lessons that, that we could learn and apply to what we do going forward. And so that's why uh, the, the design is so important to us. That's why we selected Worley as, um, as our contractor and our partner on, on building direct air capture. They have a passion around this and they know that direct air capture could make a difference in the world. And so they're very focused on, on doing this very well with us. And they have a, I won't describe it because I think it's proprietary. They have an innovation process within their company that's really exciting. And the way they capture innovation ideas and support it is, is similar to what we want to do and are doing in, in our company, combining mm -hmm. our efforts with theirs. So this is not um, a project that, uh, that we're taking lightly. We know that it could impact the, the industry and, and it could impact our efforts toward climate change. So we have a great sense of responsibility to make this work and to make it work well. And our major projects team, if you look at what they've done over the years, they're amazing. For example, if you look at the Alhosen plant in Abu Dhabi, it was a $10 billion plant that we built on time and on budget. At the peak of construction, we had to build a small city to house the 40,000 workers that were on site. And so it was a major feat, but on time and on budget, and then done so well that we were able to expand it by about uh, almost 30% with just a $10 million incremental uh, investment. And so major projects are a core competence of us. The team's led by Ken Dillon, and uh, he utilizes our OxyChem people and our oil and gas people to ensure that the process is done and done well, and we will deliver a uh, facility that will make uh, the economics work. And this will be a success for our industry and for climate change mitigation. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the, uh, the other questions that came in, uh, we've started to see this, uh, I think, particularly among some of the European majors as they branch into, you know, different parts of their business, will, they will consider um, alternative structures, right? Like possibly with plans to spin off or, you know, IPO um, or, um, set up joint ventures for some of their, their low carbon ventures. So just out of curiosity, you know, would you consider perhaps down the line of doing an IPO or some other kind of strategic restructuring around your low carbon venture business? I would say we're going to keep ourselves open to what makes sense to deliver the most value for our shareholders. And uh, whether that's keeping low carbon ventures 1.5 inside Oxy or whether that means spinning it off what we want to do is ensure that that we capture the most value but we certainly need to establish what that value could be before we we take any steps there but but it's it's all about us making it happen and making it happen in a big way and creating making sure it creates value just one one final question and then i, I know we're going to be out of time but this is just kind of around uh the industry's decommissioning liabilities and, and because you have a presence now offshore and, and onshore, you kind of have a different perspective. I mean, uh, you know, is this uh, something that investors uh, should have on their radar uh, as a concern um, or how do you see kind of the industry managing that, um, at, you know, as, you know, certain plays uh, mature? Well, we feel like that, first of all, done properly, 
the life of these platforms can be extended and should be extended if you're doing the proper things around maintenance and upkeep. Um, the other thing is we're looking at what are the other possibilities for these offshore platforms and we're not going, we're not going to give up on any opportunities that might um, present alternative uses of these uh, platforms. So there are lots of things that we're considering for that. Well, with that, we are out of time, but Vicki, thank you so much uh, again for your time. Really appreciate you joining us again this year. It was, it was a great discussion. Casey, if I could close with just yeah, a couple please. of comments. Yeah, absolutely. One is that um, ultimately we'd like everybody in the world to come together, all sectors, NGOs, regulators, everybody to come together and, and focus on what the real problem is. The real problem is emissions. And if we could all, instead of focusing on when will fossil fuels go away or should they go away, the, the really the fight is against emissions. So if we could focus on that, come together, collaborate more, we can make this happen. Otherwise, it's gonna be difficult. And secondly, when we're looking at at fuels, if we looked at like liquids, the oil production from enhanced oil recovery using anthropogenic for atmospheric CO2, that's a low carbon or a net zero carbon fuel. So if we could just look at the carbon content of fuels, the net carbon content versus where they come from, that's also another thing that can help us as a world make this transition happen. Yeah, no, that's great. That that's a puts a nice ties a nice ribbon around the conversation. Thank you all again for tuning in.